Take your Bibles with me and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter eight. It's been two months since we've been in the Gospel of John, and this morning we're gonna venture back into this book. Uh, we've covered a lot in the first seven chapters of John. As we've walked through, you've seen a number of miracles that Jesus performed. You've seen his confrontation with the Jewish leaders. You've seen Jesus' merciful ministry to those that have physical needs and also spiritual needs. We have heard in the Gospel of John thus far from John the Baptist and the disciples, and you've seen the interaction with Nicodemus and scores of other people that have been impacted by the ministry of Jesus. But through it all, again, the main emphasis of Jesus' ministry is, is what the slide here says behind. It's, the, it's the, really the thrust of what this Gospel is about. John 20, verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus came to bring life, real life. In, in him was life, and, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Does that sound familiar to anyone? If you remember, uh, we talked about it a few weeks ago, we're gonna start a new scripture memory, and that was a verse for this week, John 1, 4 and 5 really speaks again to, to the ministry of Jesus. So if you haven't already, please do join with us. This next week, we're gonna do John 1, one uh, fourteen. I'm excited about this. As we, the next year, we're gonna spend all of the memory verses through the Gospel of John. And you'll see that connect in as you're memorizing God's word of what we share on Sunday mornings. But as that verse said, Jesus was life. He was the light. And, and this light shone in darkness. And no matter how strong the darkness is, darkness can't overpower light. That's Jesus, him coming back. And so, again, I wanna give you that, that scope and understanding. This is where we're at. This is what we're talking about. This is what, what John is saying. You see that overarching theme throughout. And so as we begin John chapter eight, I hope that you understand that and see that applied here as we walk through these verses. So follow with me as I read John chapter eight, uh, starting in verse one. But Jesus went to the Mount Olives. Early in the morning, he came to get into the temple, and the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charges to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote his, with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Would you join me as I pray? God, we come before your throne and we ask, I ask that you would give understanding this morning as we look at your word. That your spirit would teach us. You'd make clear what your word says. They give us not only understanding, but application, how we could take this and apply it then to our lives. Father, as we look at this passage and we look and see your ministry and how you disturb the comfortable, 
and yet you come and bring comfort to the disturbed. Father, I pray that we'd leave this place different than when we came in. I pray for those that are seated here this morning, God, that do not know you, do not have a relationship with you. And I pray that your word would speak volumes and have power in their life, that they would repent and trust in you based upon what, what your word says. Give me clarity this morning, God, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're looking at your Bible there in front of you this morning, you might notice something strange when you come to this passage. In, in my ESV version, there are brackets around the passage this morning, starting actually in verse 53 of chapter seven, all the way through John chapter eight, verse 11. You may have a, a footnote in your Bible in the fine print. And, and I went back and forth of how I would handle this, and I know I could spend the next hour, a very beneficial hour, I believe, describing to you why this is. Um, I'm not gonna do that this morning. If you have questions about it, you can come talk to me afterwards. I would love to talk about it. But simply put, the reason why those brackets are there is that the earliest manuscripts that we have, the, the Greek manuscripts in which the Bible is translated from, this passage isn't placed here in, in John's Gospel. So without going to incredible lengths, I can say that with the scholars of whom I believe and trust would say that this incident is from the life of Christ, but probably not written by John, written by the early church, I, I believe Luke. But the words written here in these 12 verses paint a picture for us, and this is what I wanna get out of their, our time this morning. They, they paint a picture for us of a, a gracious, loving, forgiving savior. This is not a story that someone made up. It contains no teaching that contradicts any, any other parts of the rest of scripture. So this morning, I wanna share with you the story of how Jesus disturbs the comfortable, yet brings comfort the disturbed. That's my two points this morning. Jesus disturbs the comfortable and comforts the disturbed. In 2009, in the midst of difficulty and pain and uneasiness in our lives and what God was doing in our family, um, where he was leading us, it was a, it was a tough period for us. And God brought something into my life I didn't expect, a soothing balm to my soul. It was through a reading group from our mission board that I picked up a copy of the book called The Bruised Read by Richard Sibbs. Has anyone heard that book before? The Bruised Read, uh, an old Puritan author, 1600s, he wrote this book, and it brought incredible comfort to my life. The teaching he brought out of, uh, of the New Testament and the Old and the title of the book comes from Isaiah 42.3. He says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Which is a passage looking forward to, to God's servant, the rescuer, who would come not only to bring justice, but comfort to his people. I'm grateful for this book. It continues to minister to me. It's one that's on my shelf. It's one that I pull down on a yearly basis to read through it. And so I would encourage you to, to get a copy for yourself. If you don't wanna buy a physical copy, you actually can get it, it's public domain on, online. Just Google the name, The Bruised Read. But an excellent book. The Isaiah passage is mentioned in that and is also mentioned in Matthew chapter 12. And what does it mean? A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Well, Jesus is, is a perfect emblem and example for us of mercy and justice. Both, fully and completely compassionate, yet at the same time, he is just and righteous in all of his judgments. These two don't fight against each other. They're not opposed, they, they work together. And we see it clearly this morning in these verses. 
where Jesus doesn't condone sin and yet he gives mercy to the sinner. So let's look again here at this passage, starting in verse one. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. And they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might find, excuse me, might have some charge to bring against him. And then Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. The chapter begins with Jesus entering the temple in the morning and to teach. Again, this is a scene that you see multiple times throughout God's, or through John's gospel. And the Pharisees come to test him and they don't come alone. Instead, they have brought a woman with them who is steeped in sin, who they have caught in sin. Twice in these verses it says she was caught. Not presumed, not suspected, not even heard, but caught. She was found in the act of adultery. And when the woman's brought before Jesus, they do not begin with asking if she's guilty. She was caught in the act. And what they do is they ask Jesus if they agree with the penalty. So they're not asking whether Jesus agrees. They're just saying, this is the, the penalty, right, Jesus? And what they're referring to is the law of Moses from Leviticus 20, verse 10, which reads, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And what they are charging this woman with is a sin that is very serious in the eyes of God. Any type of sexual activity outside of marriage was punishable by execution from the Old Testament. And they're coming not to, to just bring judgment against the woman. No, the passage really explains to us they're coming to trap Jesus. It's a well thought out trap. Will he, the gentle, compassionate one who forgives, actually, will he actually bring judgment to this woman? And you can sense as you read it here the, the evil excitement in their sinful little hearts as they bring this to Jesus. They finally got Jesus, they think. They, they have him. They, they got him right where they want him. And for the teachers of the law, you're either fully compassionate and thus weak when it comes to morality, or you are moral and then weak when it comes to compassion. But folks, Jesus isn't gonna be forced into their mold. He is both compassionate and holy. He is righteous and loving. He is altogether different than these teachers of the law. And us, for that matter. But there's some problems with their legal proceedings. If you, if you caught it when I read the Leviticus passage, there were two guilty parties when it came to adultery. It read, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be surely put to death. And, and in the law, they needed to be both caught in the act. And so therefore, it was very difficult then to actually have the necessary witnesses to proceed with this sort of judgment. The Jewish law required that for someone to be convicted of a capital offense, that there had to be two witnesses who saw the event who were also in then complete agreement of what took place. So in this case of adultery, this woman would, would have to be set up. She would have been entrapped in this sin. Because where's the man? Why wasn't he brought along with the woman before Jesus? If they had seen the woman and caught her, they most definitely had caught the man. And yet there's no mention of him. The fact that these people came with this woman and said, we saw her do it, but there's no man there, virtually proves that this was an entrapment. There was prejudice, and possibly the man was the one who engineered it. I'm not sure. It seems 
plausible that the event was, was an orchestrated event just to trap Jesus. And if that's the case, you see the evil of men. And the law of Moses had demanded a trial, but instead, these, they, these men marched the woman out in the midst, as it says in verse three, and humiliate her. Can you imagine with me the options for Jesus at this moment? He could urge forgiveness of this sin. This would seem consistent with his teachings about grace, but then at the expense of ignoring the law. If Jesus would do that, he would be discredited by those that sought to examine if he was really God. They know that God is holy, that he is just, that his anger burns against sin. So if Jesus dismisses this, then God's justice is then tarnished. They would would rightly say, well, Jesus isn't who he says he is. But on the other hand, Jesus could take the stand with the law of Moses and call for the woman's condemnation. But that would seem to contradict his teaching on grace. John Calvin, writing about this passage, says, their intention was to constrain Christ to depart from his office of preaching grace that he might appear to be fickle and unsteady. Can you imagine with me Jesus in unison saying to these men, yeah, this woman's sin is evident. Let's gather stones right now and let's kill her. If Jesus had said that, what sinner would ever come to Jesus crying for mercy after that? said Jesus turns to these men and he's going to disturb their comfort. They're expecting Jesus to condemn this woman as as she stands before them. And and Jesus responds differently than they expected. Look at verse seven. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. So what is Jesus saying here? What is he doing and maybe you're asking, what is he writing on the ground? Everyone asked that question? Curious. You know, it has nothing to do with the story. There are a number of suggestions. You can read all, I read in commentaries and all these suggestions of what Jesus is writing on the ground. I'm gonna tell you exactly what happened there. I have no idea. <laughs> I can go down that path. No one knows. So if you ever find a historian said they figured out what Jesus wrote on the ground, just ignore them. They don't know. It has nothing to do with what's, what's transcribing here. So the question is, and I asked, why is it mentioned? The author included this in the story because he witnessed it. He wasn't privy to it. He didn't stand over Jesus and see what he wrote, but he writes it because he's an eyewitness to what's happening here, and he puts it in the story. He mentions it because it happened. There's no hidden meaning. There's no secret saying. If there's any book that goes on the bestseller list next year about what Jesus scribbled on the ground, ignore it. It doesn't matter. It's just proof that there was an eyewitness to the situation. And then what does Jesus do after that? Well, he gets up and he essentially says, get your stones and start throwing. Right? Isn't that what he says? He doesn't discourage them to throw stones, does he? He never denies that there needs to be punishment. He's not watering down sin. He's not excusing sin. He doesn't defend capital punishment, and he doesn't attack capital punishment. Instead, what he says to these men is, essentially, and what they understand and respond is, you men are disqualified from being witnesses and executioners. These men were there to pervert the law for their own benefit. 
And Jesus rightly understands their motives. He understands their heart, and he calls them out on it. The law, based upon Deuteronomy 17.7, required that the witnesses be the first to cast the stones, and that those witnesses had to be free from any association with the crime itself. And he's essentially saying, your hypocrisy is a stench in the nostrils of God. You bring up the law of Moses when it benefits your devilish plan, but what about the law of conspiracy? What about the law of, of partiality and justice? Jesus is saying, I, I don't deny the law of Moses, but by the law of Moses, I deny that you're qualified to be a witness, to be an executioner. And Jesus always raises the bar from form to substance, from outward show to inward reality with the effect that every pretense of self-righteousness stands no chance before Jesus. Jesus knows what's going on inside their hearts. He knows what's going inside our hearts. We can't fool Jesus. We can't pull a fast one on him. He knows. We can't trap him. And what's the response to this? Verse 9 and when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before them. They walk away, beginning with the older ones, then the younger. Why that order? That's a whole nother sermon. Jesus came to disturb the comforted. There's great contrast here in these verses of how Jesus interacts with these two type of people, the, the teachers of the law and the woman. It's always sad to find people who use God's word to, to not proclaim grace for salvation, but to destroy people with the pursuit of their own agenda. Jesus never uses people as a tool for his agenda. All throughout John's gospel, we get a glimpse into the heart of the Savior. And Jesus meeting with Nicodemus, when Jesus sits down and talks to the woman at the well, when, when he ministers to the paralytic by the pool, Jesus always cares for people, genuinely and individually. He knows us. He knows what is going inside of us. And Jesus moves from disturbing the comfortable in their sin to comforting the disturbed. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. It's now Jesus and the woman who are left. The teachers of the law have been chided and have left the scene. And what we have here is some incredible balance. Jesus isn't blame shifting here at all. He is clear with the woman. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. She's no longer trapped. Her, her accusers are gone. She can only be trapped if her heart is set on sinning. James 1, 14 and 15 talks about that. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. She can no longer plead with Jesus that it was a setup any longer. She's, she's not bribed into sin. She cannot blame her sin on anyone else. Instead, he turns to her and says, I don't 
condemn you, but you are sinning, sin no more. Gerald Borchette in his commentary on John writes this. He says, Jesus' verdict, neither do I condemn, however, was not rendered as a simple acquittal or a non-condemnation. The verdict was, in fact, a strict charge for her to live from this point on very differently, to sin no more. The liberating work of Jesus did not mean the excusing of sin. Encountering Jesus always has demanded the transformation of life, the turning away from sin. Sin was not treated lightly by Jesus, but sinners were offered the opportunity to start life anew. And Jesus is offering her a new life. And he gives the command, sin no more. She had lived her life in this pattern. And Jesus commands her to turn from her sin. And he does that for all of us, right? Jesus says to her, I I demand conversion. I demand a change of heart. I demand a change of life. I mean, isn't this the essence of trusting in Christ? I mean, isn't this the essence of repentance? I mean, you look at the word repentance. We're, We're going one direction towards sin. And we repent, we turn the opposite way towards God. And the whole substance of conversion is that you change from one to the other. Jesus is not excusing sin. So do you see the balance in Jesus' words? He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Well, how can Jesus say this though? Doesn't Jesus know what the law states? Doesn't he see that? Jesus isn't saying you're not guilty because actually when he says from now on sin no more, he's saying you're guilty. And that's the paradox of the gospel here. He says, you're guilty, but I don't condemn you. How can he say that? How can Jesus say this? You know, in the simple sense, he has already destroyed the case made against her by the teachers of law. He's removed the witnesses. You know, their case has been thrown out. So in the simple sense, there is no legal validity to what they were saying. She can't be executed. But you know as much as I know, that's not all that Jesus is saying here. So how could he say, you're guilty, but I don't condemn you? What right does Jesus have to say this? Paul writes for us in Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is because of what Jesus will do for this woman on the cross that he has the right to say this. It is Jesus' death on the cross that there'll be no condemnation for those that trust in him. In Romans 4, Paul says that Christ justifies the ungodly and he made him who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took her condemnation. He took our condemnation. And when you're trusting in Christ and resting in him, it's no longer there. Folks, this is the best news, isn't it? I mean, don't we need good news nowadays? 
This is the best news. You're guilty, but you're not condemned. You deserve penalty, but all the condemnation penalty is gone. So you can place yourself right with this woman when Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Have you ever realized this? I mean, think about what Jesus is saying in light of these verses just read. If you're not condemned because Jesus took your condemnation, then you're free. And think of how costly these words are for Jesus. I mean, these words that he says, neither do I condemn you. How costly this is for him. These these are costly words. They're not empty words for Jesus. Because Jesus is saying to her, sister, I don't condemn you because I will be condemned for you. Stones should be thrown and they'll be thrown at me, Jesus says. Spears will be launched, they should be launched and they'll be launched into my side. Thorns should be placed and they'll be placed in my skull, he says. A hammer and nails should come and they'll go into my feet and my hands and not yours. You are free. And it echoes back to John 1 with John the Baptist when he cries out and sees Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's no forgetting sin. There's payment for sin. Jesus doesn't remove it. He he absorbs it. There's no condemnation because he will take it for you. Amen? That's our only hope. That's the best news in the world. So what do we do with this passage? You know, there's a number of applications that I thought through. I've narrowed down to a few applications for these verses. First, if you're beat up and bruised, you need to go to Jesus. You know, when all this happens and transpires and the leaders leave, the woman is still there. The accusations are over, but she's still there. She's bruised. Are you in some sort of trouble? Are you beat up? Are you bruised? And he says in this passage, go to Jesus. He's there. He wants to see you. What does it mean to go to Jesus? It means to stop blame shifting. It means to realize your sin. So much of our pain sometimes and turmoil in life is because we're still denying that we're sinning. This woman could have easily turned and placed the blame on the men. She could have easily just continued to point to them and their, and their sinful response, the sinful way that they acted towards her. They could have done this. She could have continued to say, they, they just set me up. It's all on them. She could have rested in the legal process for her peace and avoided what had really happened. But she doesn't. She owns up. She owns up to her sin. 
The second thing, she really needed to see Jesus. She needed to look at him. She needed to listen to him. She needed to realize what he's saying and what is attending what's gonna happen for her. She needed to see him broken and bleeding to rescue him, rescue her, excuse me, from condemnation. I don't know, she's not mentioned any time in the gospel, but I can only imagine her standing there on the day when Jesus is crucified and these words ringing back. You're not condemned as he took her condemnation. She also needs, and maybe you need to go to him and obey Jesus instructs the woman what to do. He says, sin no more. Her life had been a pattern of this. This woman was living a life, finding her satisfaction in physical love. And Jesus says, find your satisfaction in me. Sin no more in this way. You know, Jesus shares another story in the gospels of a prodigal son. You, you've probably heard this before, this story. If you remember, it's about a young man who goes he leaves home, he, he gets his inheritance from his dad and he leaves, he wants to live life and he wants to live it any way he wants to and so he goes with all the money he has and he parties and does all sorts of things and in the process of it, he loses everything. He's done, he's wiped out, there's no money, all of his friends are gone at this point. He, he's, he's eating with pigs in the trough, right? And he realizes, what am I doing here? What am I doing here when, when my father and his house would have all that I need, all the bread, all the supply I need for life? What am I doing here? And there might be some here this morning that think, I don't want to go to Jesus. I'm too bruised. I'm too messed up. I've done too much and my life is a wreck. I, I can't go to him. And you haven't come to your senses like that prodigal son to realize that Jesus is standing there just like the Father and he's waiting. And in him, you receive all the forgiveness you need. In him, you'll have all the joy you need. In him, there is supply for every need in your life. He is there. He always is. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. It's a promise. If you're bruised, you have to go. You have to go. What are you doing? Where are you at? You, you need to go to Jesus. The second thing I noticed in application is Jesus never desires to leave us where we are. He never, never wants us to stay in our sin and in the mess of our sin. He loves us too much to let us continue in sin and destroy our lives. You know, the world would convey this story much differently than Jesus for the sake of love, right? The world would end at the end of Jesus saying, neither do I condemn you, stop. That's what love is for the world, right? You know, I, I won't condemn you, that's love. But if the person is headlong in sin and continue to going towards sin, it's together unloving to not warn them to stop sinning. If you truly love someone, if you truly care about them, if you truly say they have meant so much to me, then the goal should be for them not to be destroyed by sin. 
And don't be fooled, folks. If we continue to sin, we will be destroyed by it. You know, this connects back to last week's message when I talked about church discipline. The whole point of discipline is to correct sinful behavior and be in right relationship with God. You know, Hebrews 12 talks about discipline of the Lord. We didn't read it last week, but I'm gonna read it this morning. Hebrews 12, verse five. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There is a purpose for discipline in our lives. And God desires for us to be holy. And his discipline in our life is proof of his love. If you truly love someone, you don't want them to be destroyed by sin. The last thing I want to mention here this morning is it really a form of a question. Are you looking to break sinful habits through the law instead of the cross? What do I mean by that? Well, look again at the order here in which Jesus says to the woman. He doesn't say to her, from now on, sin no more, and then I will not condemn you. No, there's a statement of truth first, then the challenge to walk with God and not sin. And what he means here is that you need to get off the hamster wheel of effort. You know, the treadmill that just keep going. You just gotta keep working to earn God's favor. You know what I mean, right? You gotta keep pushing through to at some point you'll earn God's favor for your life. It doesn't work that way, folks. Take your eyes off the approval of men the approval of your employer, the approval of your spouse, of your, your parents. Get off the hamster wheel. Whatever that thing is, don't worship it. Don't place your hope in it. And we can so easily fall in this trap where we begin to think that the only way that God will accept us is if we remove these things. You might think that if you're, you just clean up your life a little bit, God will then not condemn you, that, that he will now accept you. But you have the order wrong. Folks, God isn't waiting for you to be right. He died to make you right. That is the gospel. Jesus Christ comes and says, this thing you have, is it gonna die for you? Is it going to save you? Is that gonna help you in any way? You know, what this passage is teaching us this morning is that you need to go to Jesus. You, you can't say, I only come after I clean up my life. Instead, Jesus says, come to me and give me your life. 
You, you give your life over to Jesus and in return receive grace. You receive a, a changed life. And then, get this, when you go to Jesus, all the things that are accusing you, all the things that are making you feel bad about yourself, Jesus eventually removes all that and that's just him. It's your savior. And he'll look at you and say, as he said to the woman, is there anything else accusing you now? Is there anything else here making you feel bad about yourself? Anything else you think you need to work at to be accepted by me? And there's nothing. It's Jesus. He is what saves. Perhaps this morning you feel like this woman. You feel disgraced by your sin. You feel wearied by guilt. Fearful of a holy God and his justice. And I want to encourage you this morning, look to Jesus and see your Savior. He died for you. He took your condemnation. And he says to all who receive him in humble faith, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Martin Luther said, if you have tasted the law in sin, and if you know the ache of sin, then look here and see how sweet, in comparison, the grace of God is, the grace which is offered to us in the gospel. It's sweet, folks. It's lasting. You know, in this passage, you see, Jesus came to disturb those that were comfortable in their sin. And he came to comfort the disturbed. He came to make all things right, all things new. He, he came to bring life. Where do you stand this morning? Are you looking to be comforted in your sin or to be comforted in the Savior? I pray that we as a church will be, as I said last week, Repenters, that we learn repentance, we turn from our sin, we look to our Savior. I pray that this will be an encouragement to you this week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this text, these words this challenge that has been upon me this week. And I'm sure, Father, at some point in different times in our lives, we've seen ourselves in this picture convicted over our sin, mortified over it, God. And instead of running to you, confessing our sin, repenting of it, we continue to beat ourselves up over it we continue to condemn ourselves. See, thinking somehow, God, that we can, uh, we can get ourselves out of it. We can relieve the, the pain or the hurt, or the struggle in the midst of it. 
And yet you come to us and remind us again that your grace is sweet, your forgiveness is free. I pray for those this morning that are just consumed with guilt. I pray that it doesn't weigh them down, but they would release that, that they would acknowledge it, that they would run to you. Father, I pray for those this morning that are steeped in sin, living a life of sin, continuing to look to be comforted in their sin. I pray that you would convict them this morning. They would turn from their sin, they would repent, and they would follow you. Father, I thank you for the hope of the gospel, that it's not by our works, it's not by our effort, it's not by our good deeds. None of those things matter. It's only by Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. May we rest in that. Help us to go out, Father, as we leave this place. Help us to share this good news. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.